Uh, we will be in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum. But before we get there, I want to do some review. I want to talk about the, what we've learned so far from, from this uh, chapter. So in your notes, number one, all seven churches were to receive instruction and warning as they read them. So every church got the whole package. Every church was supposed to read the entire book of Revelation. If you were the church of Ephesus and you received the letter, you didn't stop reading at the end of your letter. You kept reading, and you read about Smyrna. Then you read about Pergamum. These churches knew each other. They had relationships with each other. They were uh, overseen by the same person, the Apostle John. And as you read your letter, it spoke directly to you. When you read the other letters, it spoke indirectly to you. You were supposed to uh, be inspired by it. Uh, you were supposed to be cautioned by it. When I read uh, every one of these, because none of these are written to Heritage Bible Church of Kathlamet, so when I read any one of them or every one of them, I ask myself, what are they doing that we should also do? And what are they doing that we should not do? So I'm going to learn the positives, and I'm going to learn the negatives. I'm going to try to figure out how that translates into 2023, and I'm going to try to make sure our church is following that pattern. And we all do that together. The pastor doesn't have all the power in the church. We, as a church, move together, and we should be asking these questions. So all seven churches, and now millions upon millions of churches probably, were to, were to receive these letters and read them as if they were written to themselves. So number two, something we learned, a teaching is neither true or false based on whether or not there is a church or denomination that practices it. I've heard this a lot, and, and maybe it doesn't fit your way of thinking, but it's a, it's a wrong way of thinking. When you say to yourself, well, so-and-so's church does this. Or this group does this, just because they do it or just because they don't do it doesn't make it right or wrong. People have had bad ideas and people have had good ideas. What we need are biblical ideas, which means when I have an idea, I check it with Scripture. When I hear about a practice, I check it with Scripture. I see and ask the question, first of all, does it go against anything Scripture is taught? And if the answer is no, it doesn't go against anything, then I say, does it align itself with Scripture? And as a church, we really don't need to be doing anything that doesn't align itself with Scripture. If we just do a bunch of stuff because it sounds like a good idea, then we're really like the first church who lost their first love. They're just doing things because they're the right things to do or they sound like good things to do. The only true test of scripture or test of teaching or any movement or spiritual practice is scripture. That's the word that goes in your blank, scripture. So we've got to make sure. That's a lesson we learn. We've got to make sure we are in alignment with scripture. Number three, true believers have forgiveness. Okay, true believers have forgiveness. Every time it says uh, to those who are victorious or to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, any way they say it, it all starts with forgiveness. If my sins are forgiven, then I have eternal life. If my sins are forgiven, my name is written in the book of, of life, the Lamb's book of life. If I have forgiveness, I will be victorious. If I have forgiveness, the Holy Spirit will help me live my life. It all hinges on forgiveness. So the most important thing that we can do as individuals, 
is make sure that we have the forgiveness of God in our life. To make sure I have a relationship, that I have confessed my sin and accepted the gift of salvation. Now that forgiveness, continuing in the notes, true believers have forgiveness resulting in eternal life and are sustained in this life by God to persevere until the victory is won and then we receive our reward. Then we receive our reward. Ephesus, the first church, we read their resume. They did a lot of great things. They did a lot of great things. They were the poster church for the time period of things accomplished. But in the process, forgot their first love. They forgot who God was and what he was about. They forgot that they were God's people and they were working with God's people. And they forgot that they were reaching out to sinners. They were so in tune with accomplishment that they were accomplishing things for the wrong reasons, for themselves, to maintain their reputation, to get things accomplished. And so that was, that was the thing for them. You've forgotten your first love. You've walked away from your first love. Then number five, we talked about Smyrna last week. And, and the big thing about Smyrna was that they suffered. So Smyrna suffered a great deal socially, physically, and financially for their steadfast love and service of Jesus Christ. This church had no condemnation. It never said, uh, nevertheless, I have a few things against you, or yet I hold this against you. That was not in their letter. They were doing very well, although it was very hard. So instead of condemnation, they, their letter ended with uh, statements. Instead, they were encouraged not to have fear. They were encouraged to be faithful. Because the rich reward was coming in eternity. And, and I kind of wanted to try to give an example of how this makes sense. Because it almost seems like a letdown. Man, you guys are doing good. I know you're suffering. I know you're, you're poor. I, I know you're being afflicted. I know people are lying about you. I know that, that everything's going bad all around you. But you're steadfast. You've stood the test of time. You haven't denied me. I'm so proud of you. So keep going. You're going to heaven one day. Doesn't this kind of sound like a letdown? Well, it's because we, we kind of have the wrong perspective. Let me, let me try to give you an idea. And these are poor examples, so I'm going to give you three poor examples, hoping that together they'll be a good example, okay? This is how it works sometimes. When he says, I know it's hard for you, but eternity's coming. I know it's hard for you now, but the reward is coming Think of it in these terms. You know when you went to school, or some of you are still in school, and school just got out. You know when you were in school, some of you loved school. Some of you endured school. Right, Forrest? Yeah, some of us endured school. And, and you know, April comes around, May's just around the corner, and all I can think about is June. When's the last day of school? How many days are left? And it's like, I, I know I can get through the end of school because summer's coming. There will be a day soon when I do not have to get on the bus. And I do not have to do homework. And, 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 and I can play when I want to play. And, and so you look forward to it. So I, I can get through the end of the school year because I know summer's coming. That's my first bad illustration. Next one. You, you have, you're having a hard time at work. Big projects due. You're working overtime. Uh, seems like the job never ends. 
it's the season and it, it just goes on and on but but there's a vacation coming family vacation is around the corner and i know that i can get through this month because next month i get to be gone for two weeks and so knowing the vacation is coming helps me get through what's happening now some of you love the winter some of you were thrilled this morning to see rain nothing could make you happier other than snow some of you love the summer and wish it was nine months of the year instead of winter. So we, whichever side you're on, picture it. It's hot, but I can endure August because I know November's coming and it might snow. I'm so excited. Other people, I can get through this winter, this dreariness, the darkness, I can get through winter because I know summer's coming and it's going to be hot and I won't have to wear a coat and it's not going to rain on me. So whichever side you're on, you can get through what's happening because you know the other's coming. Well, that's, that's really what's being said. He, said. he said, in comparison, what's coming is the opposite. You're suffering now. You're in pain now. You're being lied about. You're being rejected now. But one day, when you're in eternity with me, all that's going to be gone. I, I'm going to lift you up. Uh, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be strong. You're going to be glorified. And I'm going to reward you. Now what that reward is, I don't really know. But if God's handing it out, it's good. Okay, It's not like the ribbon you got for being on the Little League team, even though you never did anything. But you threw away the garbage when you got home. It's, it's a real prize. It's, it's a real treasure. So he said, I know you're suffering. Stay steadfast, because one day that's going to seem like nothing compared to what I have for you. That's, that's what Smyrna had to offer, the shortest letter, but a lot to be said. So now we're at Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 12. Let's read this, 12 through 17. It says, to the church of the angel in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now again, Jesus in every letter says, hey, this isn't from John. I know it's his handwriting. I know it's his pen. I know it's his paper. And I know it's his mail. And it's his return address. But make no mistake, this is from me. So Jesus is saying, this is me, Jesus, writing to you. So pay attention. Verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's ominous. <laughs> I know where you live. You live in Satan's neighborhood. Your neighbor's with the devil. I, that's not a good thing, right? I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet, you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So this fellow Antipas was well-known and respected. He was put to death, and he says, I... I know that even under the threat of being killed like Antipas, which I'm going to tell you in a minute wasn't very pleasant, even in martyrdom to death, you did not renounce your faith and, and you remain true to my name. And he says, and that's great. Okay? Verse 14, nevertheless, that's the bad news. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Uh-oh, that sounds like a list. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. You've got to go back to the Old Testament to read about Balaam, and you can do that. But Balaam, basically, he taught Balak, and, and the, the, the teaching was, hey, if you get the Israelites to start sinning, God will stop blessing them. So if you want to defeat the Israelites, then trick them into sinning, and here's a good way to do it, teach them to compromise. So when you are, when it says you're, uh, some among you hold to the teaching of Balaam, he's saying there's, there's a group of you who are compromising. How are you compromising? You're eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and committing sexual immorality. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Verse 15. Likewise, similarly, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now remember, we don't know who the Nicolaitans are. We don't know what their teaching was. We just know it's false teaching. It seems like it would be similar to Balaam. So they may have been teaching things like, hey, as long as it works out in the end, do whatever it takes to get there. Or God's not real serious about that. Come on, you know. Uh, you don't have to take that seriously. Just do it this way or that way. We don't know what the teaching was, but it was a false teaching. And so verse 16, we get the answer, repent, therefore. And when, and when you read this, you should not read it, repent, therefore. It's like we hear the apostles saying, verily, verily. No, it, it's not language we use a lot. It's not, we should hear something like, knock it off. Quit being an idiot. Like, come on, man. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, knock it off. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And I have written in the margin of my Bible, right next to sword of my mouth, powerful words of destruction. Think about the many times you've heard of Jesus and the sword coming out of his mouth. There's destruction that follows. And he says, I will soon come to you and fight against them. Then verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna. We talked about that last week. That's spiritual sustenation, sustenance. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We talked about that last week. That's, that's basically their ticket into the kingdom, their ticket into the reward. All right? If you want all those details, go back and listen to last week's sermon. Let's go back to our notes. What was Pergamum like? Two things that will tell you everything you know, need to know about Pergamum. Number one, Pergamum was a center for the worship of Dionysus, Zeus, the emperor, who at this time was the emperor Domitian, and other pagan gods. Now when I say the center for the worship, that means their main temples were in Pergamum. It wasn't like they had an outlet temple store, or, or they just had a, you know, a sister temple. The, the temple, the Asia Minor temple was there. And, and they, they led the worship. So when it says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, think about that being the reference. I know you live where Satan has his throne, where the fake gods have their headquarters, where Satan is the CEO, where Dionysus is worshipped, and Zeus is worshipped, and Domitian is worshipped, and Satan is there pulling the strings, doing his work, making it the main thing. So in Pergamum... They were a religious city. 
They were the center of worship. And that's why God says, I know where you live. I know you live where you're the minority. I know you live where all the big gods have their temples. Where all the popular gods have their temples. Where all the false gods have their temples. I know you live in a very rough neighborhood. And I know that Satan is there. And then number two, what do we know about Pergamon? We know that Antipas, and this comes from history, okay, history, historical documents and all that. Antipas was a physician suspected. And that's a, that's a, that's a very definite word, very interesting word. Antipas was a physician suspected of secretly propagating Christianity. You know I got this from somewhere else because I don't use the word propagating very often. They were suspected of secretly propagating Christianity, which basically means he was acting like a Christian. And he was telling people about Jesus. After being accused of disloyalty to Caesar, because Christianity was not an accepted religion, you could worship Caesar or you could worship any of the gods approved by Caesar, and your best bet was to worship Caesar and the gods he approved. That was how you were supposed to operate if you operated outside that circle you were disloyal to Caesar. So since Antipas served Christ, he was accused of being disloyal to Caesar, and then he was condemned. So after being condemned to death, Antipas was placed inside a copper bull cauldron, which was then heated over a fire until it was red hot. What is a copper bull cauldron? Well, the best I could find made the most sense was it was a copper mold that they would use to produce the shape of a bull for a, like an idol. So think of a mold that you pour the, the metal into to create your idol. He was placed inside of it. So it was a big one that they could put him in. He was placed inside it and then it was held over the fire till it turned bright red. And you can guess what happened to him in that process. Basically, they cooked him to death. And so God is saying, I know you live in the neighborhood of Satan. I know all the big, huge temples are, are right in your neighborhood, right around the corner. I know that you're, you're not liked, you're, you're, you're persecuted, even to the point of death. I know all these things, which sounds very similar to Smyrna, right? Sounds very similar to Smyrna, and, and Smyrna, that was... He stopped right there and he said, and that's great. But in Pergamum, he continues on, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So let's continue on in our notes. We'll get to those few things. Let's, let's kind of look through the positive real quick, just review that. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. It's tough. There's a lot of opposition. I know you're being persecuted. I know about Antipas, for example. Number three, yet you do not disown me. You do not renounce your faith. So things are going great, very much like Smyrna. We get to the negative in verse 14. Number one in your notes, some among you hold to the teachings of Balaam. That's a quote right from the scripture we read. Eating meat sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Notice it says some. It doesn't say they all were. It doesn't say the church was known for this or the majority of the church. He said some. And there's a lesson there. Some is a bad thing. Enough worth mentioning doing something evil will tear down a church. 
He says, you guys need to think about this. You need to take care of it. You need to do something about it. You have some among you who have fallen for this lie. The teaching of Balaam, you're eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, if you've been around for a little while, and you remember back when we talked about Acts, when we went through the whole book of Acts, you remember that big hoopla where there was a big argument, and the conclusion was, you don't have to worry about where the meat came from that you ate. Paul said, meat is meat. If you get a good deal on some used meat, go for it. Get the meat. Save some money. Eat the meal. And now we hear Jesus saying, I have this against you. You're eating meat sacrificed to idols. How do we reconcile those? Well, how we reconcile it is in the context of all these other temples. What these folks were doing was they were going to these temples and they were eating the meat sacrificed to idols with the people that were sacrificing them. They weren't buying them in the discount market behind the temple. They were showing up for potluck and for meat offered to idols that day during the service in front of them. They were practicing this. And when it says they were committing sexual immorality, they were also doing that at the temple as part of the religious practices of the false god. Sexual immorality was almost always a part of their worship, and they were going and participating. So in other words, some of them got saved and never quit doing the old stuff. Some of them got saved, quit doing the old stuff, but found their way back to the old stuff, and were doing exactly what God had told them not to do. And he says, he says some of you are doing this, and it's got to stop, repent, knock it off, or I'm going to come and we're going to have words. I would not want to hear Jesus say, if you don't stop, I'm going to come fight you. You know, Daniel sometimes, he's here, I'll pick on him. Daniel sometimes goes, you want to fight me? And sometimes I do. <laughs> Most of the time I don't. I would not want to hear God say, I'm going to come fight you. And by the way, I have a sword that comes out of my mouth. And, and I think they knew what that meant. Like, my, my words can take you out. I don't even have to fight. My words can do the job. So they were participating in this, this worship service that wasn't theirs. And then it says, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So they had another group, maybe the same group, but a significant group nonetheless, who were listening to the false teachings, who were not comparing it to the scriptures, and were embracing it. They, they, were, they were moving on in ignorance, hopefully ignorance, Hopefully they didn't realize it was a false teaching, but they weren't bothering to check. Remember what we talked about earlier, the scripture is the key? So these are the negatives, that's what they're being accused of. And then there's the command and the warning, we've talked about that. The command is repent, knock it off, quit it. And the warning is, if I will soon come to you, the church of Pergamum, and will fight against them, the some and the those mentioned earlier, with the sword of my mouth, the swift, powerful, decisive, and destructive weapon. So that's a good warning. Should have got their attention. Don't really know if it got their attention or not. We don't have any record of what particularly happened in this area. We know that right now uh, the, the old city of Pergamum is, is, is in ruins. They have, they've uncovered it architecturally, and they can see all these things. So history has been validated that these temples were there. And there was a church there and this kind of stuff. But today there are few known believers and zero churches. 
They could have been a victim of history. This is modern-day Turkey and the entire region, which was once the center of Christianity, has become the center of the Muslim faith. So they could have become a victim of culture or history. They also could have become a victim of themselves because they never corrected the situation. We don't know. Most importantly today, what is the message to us? What is the message to us? What am I supposed to take home that's going to help me live my life? Well, here's the first answer. Number one, compromise is not an acceptable solution when it comes to practicing your faith. Compromise and faithful living don't go together. I, I, I cannot compromise my faith and maintain my faith. So, A, in your notes, they did what everyone else did. They did, the people in Pergamum and the church of Pergamum did what everyone else did in Pergamum. They ate meat, offered to idols, and they committed sexual immorality. Even though they knew it was not pleasing to God, and they did know it was not pleasing to God. They were not ignorant, they were not unaware. This is late in history. Long, all the other disciples are dead. Paul is dead. They've read Paul. They've read the other disciples. They know what God expects. It was never allowed. And, and, and they know what God wants. And they chose to live this lifestyle anyway. Why? A couple of reasons, maybe in your notes. Business. Business practices. Maybe they said something like, well, if I want to be successful, I have to be with the successful people. If I want them to buy from me, I need to socialize with them. Where do I go when we're not working? Well, they go to the temple. They go to the temple of Zeus. So I'm going to go to the temple of Zeus. I know it's not real, but I'm going to participate. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to be with them. Why? Because I need to do some business. I'm going to sell more product. I'm going to get a better price. I'm going to have more opportunity. I need the connections. So I'm going to go be a part of what they're doing to get those connections. Maybe that's what they said. Maybe it was social acceptance. The cool people, the pretty people, the powerful people, the smart people, the influential people, the political people, that's where they are. They're at these temples. They're doing this stuff. So maybe for social acceptance, in order to be somebody, in order to not be a nobody, I'm going to participate. Maybe it was super simple. Maybe it was just to fit in. Whatever the reason was, they compromised their faith. They went against the teachings of God's word. And they were doing what everyone else was doing. And they were doing it to false gods in worship. Where else might compromise come? How might it get there? Well, B, write the word rationalization in there. It's a big word. Spell it any way you want. Rationalization. Here's what it sounds like to rationalize. Well, no one seems to be getting punished. I've heard this. I know what God says. I know what the Bible says. And I, I know my parents told me that too. And the pastor says it all the time. I wish he'd stop. But I, I know what the Bible says. But you know what? I see everyone else doing it. No one else seems to be having a bad time with it. No one else seems to be getting in trouble. So all I see is everyone else having fun while I'm stuck here doing the Christian thing. And I'm missing out on life. So I think I should get to do it anyway. Obviously God doesn't care about it as much as I thought he did. That's rationalizing. Um, I don't want to be the only one to be left out. Here's one. It won't hurt much. A little bit won't hurt. I'll be careful. I won't, I won't let it go too far. 
I'll just be there, but I'll be careful. All rationalizations. Saying something like, I'm the exception to the rule, this kind of thing. Compromise, rationalization is part of that compromise. See in your notes, write the word pragmatism. Pragmatism, again, spell it any way you want. It means, basically, the end justifies the means. So pragmatism says, it doesn't matter how I get there as long as the job gets done. Sometimes pragmatism is a great thing. If I've got a pile of rocks in my driveway that need to be spread and I don't have a tractor, pragmatism says the job needs to get done so I get my shovel out and I do it the hard way. Pragmatism. The job needs to get done. doesn't matter how it gets done. We get it done. If I don't have a shovel, maybe I want to do it with my hands. I don't know. Hire the neighbor kid. Pragmatism. That's good pragmatism. Bad, bad pragmatism says it doesn't matter who gets hurt. It doesn't matter what compromise I have to make as long as I get what I want when it's over. So pragmatism is kind of neutral, but when applied to your faith, it doesn't usually work out. So pragmatism would say, this is what I have to do to be successful in this city. I don't really have a choice in the matter. Look at the great things I'm able to provide for my family. I want my family to have good stuff, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compromise a little bit to do this, that, and the other so that my family has good stuff. So the important thing is my family's provided for and they have good stuff. doesn't really matter what I had to do to make that happen. The end justifies the means. Another statement you might make in that pragmatic form is uh, we need more friends and fewer enemies if we're going to survive. Well, that makes a lot of sense in, in part of the world, but in the spiritual world, we're not counting friends and we're not counting enemies. We're, we're, we're in alignment with Christ. We're, we're going with what the Bible says. So compromise comes in a lot of different forms. Sometimes it's rationalization. Sometimes it's pragmatism. Sometimes my motive is business or social or whoever, whatever, whenever. It comes in a lot of ways. But compromise, when it comes to spiritual matters, doesn't work. So number two, HBC, Heritage Bible Church, must... Hold to the scriptures firmly. Isn't that interesting? It came up again. We must hold to the scriptures firmly. Not we ought to or should or probably will or anything like that. We must hold to the scriptures firmly while avoiding erroneous, deceitful teachings. While avoiding them. Which sometimes means we have to name names and we have to name places and we have to say stay away from this, don't read that. Watch out for this. Don't believe this. This is a lie. Don't practice that. Sometimes it means that we say, this is why Scripture says to handle it. It's the better way. It's God's way. This is the way. We're going to do it, even if it costs you something. We must hold to the Scriptures firmly while avoiding erroneous, deceitful teachings. That right there is the difference between the church in Smyrna and the church in Pergamum. The church in Smyrna held to the scriptures firmly and avoided erroneous, deceitful teachings and went where God took them. And God said, I know it's hard, but I'm going to bless you one day and it's going to be worth it. The church in Pergamum did not hold the scriptures firmly. They embraced erroneous and deceitful teaching and God had to say to them, knock it off or I'm going to come and we're going to fight over it. With the sword that comes out of my mouth. Not good. Now, I want to also take it a step further in your notes what this passage is not telling us, because we could take it the wrong way. 
some people would say, well, that just proves that we should have nothing to do with pagans, unsafe people, unbelievers, or any people that have a sinful lifestyle. We shouldn't have anything to do with them. Shouldn't talk to them, shouldn't be around them, shouldn't do nothing, shouldn't work with them, nothing. However, continuing on, they are your neighbors, they are your customers, they are your employers, they are your ruling buddies, etc., etc., etc. So it doesn't work. God never says, avoid the unbelievers, avoid the sinner. He does say, don't hang out with them and do what they do, right? Instead of avoiding them, this is what we should do. Last thing in your notes. Rather, pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 44, pray for those who persecute you. If, if someone is afflicting you, pray for them. If they're causing you to miss an opportunity, pray for them. If they're slandering you, pray for them. If they're badgering you, pray for them. That doesn't sound logical. I know that. It sounds counterintuitive. But it's God's way. And we kind of have to believe that the God who created the universe knows what he's doing. And he says, pray for them. So my best move going forward is to pray for those who persecute me. Pray for those who make my life difficult. In that same passage, it says, love your enemies. Like, if there's people who are literally against you, you have to defend yourself against their attacks. God says, love them. There's a challenge, right? Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. In Jeremiah 29, 7, the instruction is given, do good in whatever city you find yourself. Now, these are the Jewish people who have been exiled to Babylon and other places over there. And Jeremiah says, wherever you find yourself, while, while you're in exile, while you're a captive, do good in whatever city you find yourself. Do good because life will be better for you if you're making their life better. Do good because if you serve me and serve them, they might ask who your God is. Do good in whatever city you find yourself. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Live good lives among the pagans. Among the pagans. Be there with them. Just don't live their life. Live your good life among the pagans, it goes on to say, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine brightly. Let your light shine. Let people see who you are. So, when there's opportunity to compromise, we accomplish these things. When we don't compromise, we become those who might hear God say, hey, knock it off or we're going to have words. Right? That's probably not the place we want to be. I'm going to pray this for us and ask you to join me in that prayer. Father God, Thank you for these warnings and these encouragements. And we do want to remain true to your name. We do want to be said of us that, that even under death, even under persecution, that we remain true to your name and we did not renounce our faith. We want to do that. But we don't want to be compromisers. We don't want to be getting along so that life gets easier when you've called us to stand firm. We don't want to practice sinful things for business purposes or social purposes. We don't want to rationalize our behavior, rationalize our sin. We don't want to be pragmatic about that. 
We want to hold to Scripture, and we want to avoid false teachings. Father, help us to pray for those who persecute us, to love our enemies, to do good wherever we find ourselves, to live good lives among those who don't know you, so that they maybe will know you one day, and to let our light shine bright so that, that you are seen and people can know who you are. Father, that fits so well with everything we've talked about, what our goals are as a church, the things we pray for together on Sunday morning. It, it just fits so perfectly. Help us to be those people. And, and even if it gets hard, and especially if it gets hard, let us be more like the church of Smyrna who just gets the pat on the back and says, you're doing good, keep going. Don't give up. I have a reward for you. And it's going to be so much better than it is now. Father, we don't know where the world's going. We don't know what Satan is trying to accomplish or whether he'll be successful. We don't know if he'll step in and stop him or, or delay him. We also don't know if it's coming fast. Maybe the rapture is going to happen tomorrow. We just don't know. But as we live our lives, may we serve you. May we not deny you. Help us to live for you in a way that does let our light shine brightly and does cause other people to glorify your name. I ask this in your son's name. Amen.